0: Skip Sly, farmer, conservationist, hunter in Iowa. And welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast.
1: All right, roll it. Dude. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from Axe and Root
2: Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. I'm Judd McCullum
1: from Working Class Bowhunter. I'm Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson, Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritsch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Sam Soholt Phil Ebert. Julie and you are listening to the prairie farm the prairie farm. Prairie farm. prairie farm prairie farm prairie farm podcast prairie farm podcast welcome to the prairie farm podcast welcome back to the prairie farm podcast we got a special one lined up for you today in our home state of iowa please remember this podcast is presented by hoxie native seeds skip you came from michigan to iowa to become a a farmer or became a farmer maybe that wasn't your original intent. not my intent but uh i think that's the first time that's happened since the 1800s that somebody has <laughs> left michigan for <laughs> iowa to become a farmer
0: yeah it's not not part of the plans I, if <laughs> at a younger age i would definitely would have said it would be impossible but i really just came out here to buy um a little farm to have a good place to hunt and where i grew up i really didn't have a good place to hunt it was all overrun, destroyed, uh, degraded, just awful, awful, awful. And I just started traveling around the country and finally, um, came, came onto Iowa and realized that this is where I wanted to stay. But, um, yeah, the goal was, is to have a little piece of ground that I could hunt that I couldn't get kicked off of. I couldn't, you know, other people weren't out screwing things up for me. And, um, that was the goal. And it, it just turned into, you know, what I do now, which is my full-time job and farming and managing my farms and fixing up farms and anything under the
1: sun that has to do with the outdoors and conservation. Hmm. Uh, That's awesome. That, that, that leads me kind of to my, you know, well, I'm not even going to word it that way. I think a lot of people have no clue the value that whitetails hold in our state. They know, yep, great ag state. You can grow, you know, a fortune's worth of corn and beans, or you can have livestock. But most people don't recognize that value. Because I know, you know, I, I, I'm i very passionate about hunting, you know, so I, I spend a lot of time talking with other hunters. I know many people who have done a similar thing in that they... I mean, no one's done what Skip has done, let's be honest. But but they've done a similar thing in that they came from a state that was not a whitetail state, and they moved specifically to Iowa for that reason. I wanted to leave here to go to Iowa, set my roots there, just because I want to get after whitetails. Would you agree with that, that a lot of people have no clue of that value that our state holds?
0: 100%. A lot of the residents have no clue... Um, I literally know probably getting into the hundreds of guys who have relocated from other states to here and the value, the monetary value of whitetails or just the desire to come here and hunt a quality, uh, just a a well-balanced herd with a balanced age structure is so valuable because there's an army in other states that loves to hunt that just mm-hmm. loves being outdoors and their states have been just flushed down the tubes and states that were once good like minnesota um back in the 80s was actually a really really good state and you had these guys that were they loved it and they were passionate about it and, and minnesota in a matter of a, a decade or two just went down the tube so what, what you, happened there They changed the regulations. They liberalized them, which is what every state's done yeah. other than Iowa. And Iowa has liberalized their their regulations to some extent, but not not to the extent that Minnesota has uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, every other state. They've just let the special interests change those states to ruin them. Um, And what people in Iowa don't realize is that, you know, this is kind of the last great state. There's a few others that are pretty good, but... um, What happens is, is you now have an army, an army that says, hey, my state just got ruined over the last Mm -hmm. decade. And Mm. even in five years, like Illinois got fundamentally ruined in about a five year period while I was going there. Um, so you've got the hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of hunters who said, man, I love this sport and Mm -hmm. my state's ruined. Uh, where can I go? And Iowa naturally pops up on the radar. Well, when you have hundreds of thousands or even millions of hunters across the country that are willing to travel or willing to relocate their family or themselves, uh, you know, Iowa's a target and, you know, it's, it's great for that, those people. And that's what I did. But, you know, being less than 8% timber in this state, it is not a finite resource. Mm -hmm. Um, there is a limit to how much we can take for other hunters, um, which, you know, as long as we manage the draw the way we do and limit it that way, um, the state will stay good. But it is a very finite resource and a, vag- a very fragile resource. So there's a lot of outside pressure that wants to come here. Same with Kansas, same with a couple other destinations because, you know, it's it's kind of the last great place that's still managed right. And it's it's even hurting now. I mean, we're, we're down right now uh, for a whole host of reasons, the and 19 uh just more hunting pressure uh the residents not having access to good quality ground um and and maybe reducing their standards a little bit on what they'll shoot i mean i would say Iowa's not as at its peak anymore uh compared to 10 years ago it's down but it's still i mean just light years ahead of the the other states Mm -hmm. if you
2: look at the country as a whole um and how many people want to hunt and how many people want to hunt whitetail and how much habitat there is, do you think there's even enough habitat to support the amount
0: of people that want to hunt? Not in Iowa. No. I mean, Iowa, like I said, it's less than 8% timber. It's, you know, it probably will go down to about 7% with these higher commodity prices. People are dozing in their timber. Um, you know, and the CRP programs are going to help help the habitat situation some, but there's a little bit of reluctance to put ground into CRP with these higher commodity prices. Um, so Iowa uniquely, uh, we are, uh, we're past the point, I mean, there's, people are lose, are quitting hunting because they don't have access to quality land. Mm. That's the number one reason that new hunters or hunters in general are quitting. And that, that actually is the same for other states as well. But, you know, if you look at how much quality habitat that Iowa has compared to You know Minnesota Wisconsin Michigan Pennsylvania Indiana Illinois Missouri I mean hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times more habitat than Iowa has if you combine those all up and Iowa probably produces more older older deer than all those states combined I mean maybe not quite um certainly not certainly up there though and I know somebody would disagree with that and they'd reference the record books and which I don't put much merit into but it's just the other states could be phenomenal better than Iowa better than Iowa and I've said this in some podcasts in the past but I mean these other states like Missouri uniquely could be vastly better than Iowa I mean I think they've got four times the habitat that Iowa does the the mix with ag and timber is perfect. It's vast habitat. They just have to move that rifle season back 14 days. And and Missouri would be the number one whitetail state in the country, period, hands mm-hmm. down. Um, so, you know, Iowa just gets uniquely kind of targeted because it's the last holdout that's held out from selling out to the special interests. And, and it is such a small amount of habitat. So much of the state is wide open with no deer uh, people don't realize that they think, well, Iowa's Iowa. There's big bucks everywhere. There isn't. It's a very, yeah. very small portion. Yeah. And I would say the the top end quality, like really well managed stuff. If you say, well, seven percent of the state, close to eight, is timber. So is seven to eight percent of the state just full of giant bucks? No, it's it's just a fraction of that. So I'd say, you know, one percent of the state, one percent is managed exceptionally well with you know mature very a lot of mature bucks uh and that's just a very very small portion and guys still uh turn on youtube or or a hunting show and they see these giant bucks well that's that the farm i'm talking about that's the top end managed stuff that's the best of the best and that's not reality
1: for the rest of the state it's just not well we're kind of talking all around it and there's one other point i want to make here too you know the way you describe that as states ruin themselves we'll say or at least greatly diminish their product for the hunter and they kind of look for the next thing that's how we got into our original wildlife crisis at settlement of this country you know you look at how you know the, i recently listened to uh while well, i was working uh, the book boone by robert morgan about daniel boone and uh you know he was One of the first people to really settle into the Kentucky area, you know, and and a place very rich and all kinds of species of game. And uh, then settlement followed him shortly thereafter within his own lifetime. And uh, he's like, yeah, I'm out of here eventually. You know, he didn't finish off life in Kentucky. He went to Missouri because everything that was so great about Kentucky had been used up. And uh, then, you know, you look well after Boone's time, you look into, you know, once the transcontinental railroad made it across into the West, you know, what happened to the bison herds? What happened to the, and we basically followed, you know, erasing the quality of, of our wildlife populations throughout our entire continent. And then, you know, thankfully legislation came through and started to regulate our, our, and manage our, our wildlife here and saved it before it was all gone but in a way we still have that tendency to do that as people it's human nature yeah just this a- is why
0: i left michigan uh, it's why i left michigan i mean i did everything from rabbit hunt squirrel hunt fish it was all degraded i mean ponds that you couldn't i mean everybody took everything you'd go mm-hmm. squirrel hunting And you'd, there'd be five other squirrel hunters that were in there before you, all the, you'd go to kick brush piles for rabbits and they'd all been smashed in by other people. I mean, it was, it's a degraded failed, failed resource, um, that the people just allowed to destroy. The regulations were so liberal, all in the, the, um, you know, pushed as opportunities for everybody. Well, all of those opportunities for everybody ruined the resources. Mm. So I loved it that much that I said, you know, I, once I realized there's other States that had amazing outdoors and just like your, your story, I mean, a guy leaving Kentucky, uh, to go to where it's better. I mean, that's fundamentally what I did. Now, what I, I strive to do that you know, is concerning with other people is when I leave a a degraded, destroyed place, I don't want to take that mindset with me and do the same thing to where I go. And that's where, you know, I won't get too far into politics here, but people will leave these these horribly run uh, big cities and they'll take the, you know, because they're just destroyed for... The polit- from the politicians and, and the way they voted for years and years and they moved to these other places and vote the same way it's yeah. just like why yeah so yeah. i want to make sure yeah. when i left michigan and i came to iowa i you know i adopted um top tier conservation and management practices because i didn't want any inklings of of what i left to to start taking hold here and and i really do hope that the people that move here and i talk to them about this you know don't do the same things here yeah. that you did back at home that it have ruined your state, and and you know going full circle to your point, I mean it, it's it, I don't even where the places where there's lots of wildlife, whatever it may be, it's still a fragile system, and we've seen through the 1900s where big game animals have been just completely removed from states or, or whole re- regions. Some of the times they haven't even returned, um, you know, and you you look at it with examples that are more pertinent to to today, um, you know, I watched Iowa pheasant hunting just be ruined yeah, in yeah, five yeah, years, yeah. five and 10 years. I watched Illinois deer hunting ruined in five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen pockets in Iowa that have been ruined very quickly, a matter of a few years, you know, so
2: just from commodity prices getting high enough that people rip out the habitat or
0: that and, and the regulations. So, Ah. one example would be um about seven or eight years ago they put a late rifle season out uh, across most of the state i can't remember if it was the whole state but they just liberalized how many does could be taken and in some of the pockets uh you know maybe there's some merit to it but even, even those pockets where there's high deer numbers there's high deer numbers because these people lock up their ground and say hey i'm not participating in this crazy season anyways and but some of the areas that were just not overpopulated where all of a sudden there was an influx of tags, influx of killing. I mean, those areas are still not recovered. You know, there there's pockets where my buddies are north of highway 80 in in Iowa, everywhere above that. They're like, we have very few deer. If some of the cases, no deer, you know, and there's, there's areas where you can see 10 and 20 miles without a tree now. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly that's, you know, that's more habitat, but, you know the the liberal regulations here um have hurt very quickly very quickly big portions of the state and they're they're far from recovered and even even this season they just added the um the late rifle season for down here uh if there's unsold tags and it just if you follow it through the politicians decide this stuff which they're not educated on these issues they're not yeah um if you follow through the logic, it doesn't make any sense. Now, I understand why they think they want to do this, how they think they're going to go about it, but their their logic is incorrect. It's flawed. The law is, and, and like that new season, it's flawed. It makes no sense. I could gladly explain why. Um, but the politicians, I would say 90% of the time, are going to make the wrong choice when it comes to uh, wildlife management. And that's the problem is all these states, including Iowa, but you know vastly other ones, it's been the politicians that make the policy over over the d n r most of the times. Mm-hmm. depends how your state's set up, but yeah um Iowa, for example, I mean the politicians have the power the d n r has very very little influence right. they really. can
1: just basically pass on a recommendation and politicians can decide to either go with that or and they usually don't care right. what the d n r has to say they right.
0: don't they care what the insurance lobby has to say or the special interest that donates to them or lobbies with them. Um, that's who they care about.
2: Oh, yeah. We've said it time and time again. In order to move government, you have to move big money. But the only way to move big money is for mass population to decide they want something. For instance, if everyone decided that they weren't going to drink artificially sweetened uh, products, well, then all of a sudden Pepsi would start sweetening with sugar, right? They'd, They'd start changing things. So you need a mass population change. Then a big company puts their money and weight behind it only then do we start getting rules and and that's kind of the whole point of the podcast is to educate people so the the mass the masses, the the um you know just us regular old folk uh can understand what's going on and push for what's better for us and the wildlife around us yeah
1: and, and we we've been talking you know you've been mentioning bits and pieces of what these regulations are i think we should talk about them let's be you know Let's be uh, as plain as we can be here. What are the kinds of things that other states have implemented? I mean, just almost like a bullet point list that they have done that has degraded their whitetail quality. So I would story. say it mimics
0: some things along what what Iowa's done. But I'll give you an example of Iowa. So Iowa's a little over four months of deer season. That's clearly over a third of the year. There is seven seven deer seasons and there's six plus weapon choices. Well, I don't know that in any state you need a third of the year to shoot deer. Um, I I think it's crazy. I mean, two or three months, I mean, I get it. Uh, but over a third of the year, you don't really need that. Well, that's what other states have done as well. They've made it. So, okay, you got a third of the year you can shoot deer. And then they say, let's put every weapon known to man, and, oh, and they no. put these weapons in place that the hunters didn't ask for, mm-hmm. you know, Missouri had meetings saying, do you guys want crossbows or not? And it was unanimously. The hunters said, we do not want crossbows. And guess what they got? Mm-hmm. They got crossbows. I'm
2: pretty sure in Texas, they, uh, they allowed bazookas. Uh, probably hunting like, bazookas <laughs>
0: probably <laughs> if it was for hogs that'd be pretty cool yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's probably
1: just for hunting tigers now but that. i mean yeah,
0: yeah yeah you you propose anything in iowa um the hunters aren't asking for all these things or in any state i mean it wasn't the hunters that were driving this crossbow push which is the big one going across the country and yeah. some of the states sold out and uh caved to raven crossbows out of new york just so raven could make some money Uh, they didn't care that the resource was ruined. They didn't care that archery season got flooded and guys didn't have places to go. They didn't care. Uh, They just wanted to make a buck, and they pushed these politicians. They hired countless lobbyists, and it's part of their business model, so they can make a few million bucks to ruin a state. Mm -hmm. And it's a classic example. You know, I mean, that's how it plays out with all this stuff. Uh, If I'm an outside group and I want to change the regulations in another state, I'll just pull my money together with a few buddies And we'll go to another state and hire a lobbyist or or donate to these politicians so we get, you know, get what we want approved. Um, and, And they're taking in that case, they'd be taking my side over the residents and over their own voters and by definition, those politicians should be gone. They should be, they're should they not representing their people. They're sellouts. That's what people are disgusted with with politics is the sellout politicians. And, and that goes on all the time. But that's where people got to pay attention, uh, get organized, and, and stop it. Because, yeah. you know, that, that's not how our system should work. And those people should be gone.
2: Well, um, mm-hmm. oh, episode 40-something, we interviewed Ryan Callahan. Um, from Meat Eater. He's a meat Eater's conservationist. And his podcast, Cal's Weekend Review, super good. I actually hadn't heard about it till Kent was like, hey, we should try and get this guy on the podcast. Um, and he talks about all the different legislation that has to do with public land and conservation and things like that. Over maybe 30 minutes a week, he said, hey, these are the issues. This is what's going on in your state. And he says over and over again, in every single episode, make sure you're telling your local, state and federal, politicians what you think email them regularly call Absolutely. in be be telling them and and i think a, a big part of it is is we're not we're not doing that no nope. you know and yeah. and i I've, i we even, did
0: this year in iowa really yeah so yeah. i probably have talked to i'm trying to get to every single one of them um i personally got to talk every to every single
2: one of the politicians yes and,
0: everyone in the senate and everyone in the house um i've met with I met and had a good discussion with maybe a quarter of them. I probably have talked to half of them, uh, and I want to get to the other half uh, in the next year or two. But, you know, the I, all continuously, over and over and over, all I heard was, we don't hear from hunters. We don't hear from hunters. I don't know anything about hunting. You know, we hear from the angry farmers, we hear from the insurance companies, we hear from these lobbyists that the crossbow companies hire, or these people that want more tags. We hear from them, we don't hear from the hunters. So we got very organized this year. There was, when you say
2: we, who's we? We
0: would be um, the people, the, the hunters of the state, and I would say the biggest force uh, that represents these people would be the Iowa Hunters Association, which everybody must join. They should join it. Yeah. Uh, they're the only reason that Iowa has stayed great. Had And people don't realize this. I mean, anything that has to do with Iowa and the quality of Iowa, had it not been for the IBA, would all be gone a long time uh-huh. ago. So they're, they're the only one that has hired a lobbyist uh, to fight back, that will fight back against special interests. And these special interests are coming in coming in against the IBA, the Iowa Bull Hunters Association, and the people to make money. The IBA is oh, not yeah. there to make money. They're just there to preserve this great, last, fragile state. They're just there to preserve yeah. it. Um, you know so- what that
2: reminds me of? It reminds me of the Revolutionary War where a country with no money was fighting <clears throat> against the, the country with all the money. And, I mean, there was so many other things in play, but it, it's crazy. These These companies come in, and they're like, oh, we could probably make $10 million a year in there. Yeah. So right now we're going to throw $40 million Absolutely. at this issue. And it's, it's the like, same thing.
0: Even? It's yeah. the same thing. We need to have a tea party. I mean, Raven Crossbows is, uh, I mean, it's it's a shameful what that company has done to different states. And, and I know there's a couple other crossbow companies that join up with them, but they're the ones that did it in Iowa. Um yeah i mean it's it's despicable and we need to have some version of a tea party and that could be a mass amount of hunters that say we don't we're not going to buy raven crossbows hmm. um and, and and i hope that's what happens and that's what should happen because they're destroying they're destroying new hunters um ability to get places to hunt they're destroying the deer herds they they don't care what happens in these states that they're just gonna make a couple million bucks from.
2: Is anybody talking about that? Do you know, are there any big <sighs> names talking like, hey, this company?
0: Well, there is, there's a few, but the problem is, is some of these people that know that Raven Crossbows is, is ruining states, they're getting sponsor money from Raven Crossbows and they don't wanna mm. speak out or they don't wanna ruffle yeah. any feathers. And when you've got a system like that and you've got people that, that won't stand up against what's clearly just right and wrong uh, and what's ruining the resource, it's a problem. So you know people need to be asking whoever you know this hunting celebrity this guy that produces this video whatever where do you stand on these issues and it needs to be made public because trust me i know these i know a lot of these people and there's some good ones and there's some ones that i'm just like shake my head at but uh, where do you stand on this listen the you know whatever group raven or or some of the stuff with um selling tags or more more this more that more tags you know and when we don't have access where do you stand on these issues and publicly discuss this stuff because um they're on the wrong side of it and if they bury their their head in the sand because they're getting paid by them that's a problem yeah you know it's it's selling out our industry uh if you want to call it that i mean the hunting industry selling it out like that not speaking up for what's right and wrong is what's going to ruin it
2: though i mean if if we can't as a as a as a podcast and and people who have been working with us if we can't convince people that there is value in life past the dollar we're going to fail like that that's where it's got to start like hey you got to know that making more if, if all if all the world wanted to do was make more money and conservation and all these other things and like experiences didn't matter at all then sure you know uh pull up every single tree kill every single deer who cares but if there is value more than just the dollar which i would say most value is actually more than the dollar oh yeah. um then then we've got to do something about it and the problem is when companies come in and all of their value is in the dollar then so really tough
0: you're exactly right and where we win this though is we have a group of people that are in hunting not for money you know you're not in this and let's just be honest a lot of people are not in this just to feed their family i mean i eat the meat i utilize the meat i love the meat but i can go to the grocery store and what i spend on a pound of venison even at a basic level is obscene so, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. So it's not about the money. So hunters as a group are not driven by money. You know, people who buy land to hunt on are not driven by money. You know, the majority. Um, they would go buy tillable land or commercial real estate or something. They're not driven by money. People who want to conserve the soil, who want to do regenerative agriculture, who want to do agroforestry, are not driven by the money. They're driven by the passion. So what I'm saying fundamentally is, when you're dealing with a group that is not driven by money, that is driven by passion, by morals, by ethics, when those, grou- when that group of people joins up and gets organized, they can beat the sellouts and the lobbyists and the special interests every time because they have the facts on their side. They're not doing it for selfish interests. They're not doing it to make money. They're doing it to preserve, to to make things better, to uh, improve opportunities for new pe- new hunters or new Um, new farmers or or people 50 years down the road you know and they want to leave the the earth a better place so all that needs to happen is these folks need to get organized and the one example of the Iowa Bowhunters Association there there could be a million different variations of that whether it be you know groups of farmers that get together um, and organize or you know every state should have a group that represents the hunters of that state that defends against the special interests so uh the hunters the conservation all these people they they will win this fight if they organize because they have the truth on their side they have the facts on their side and they're not driven by the just the dollar just the dollar with all the detriments that
1: these special interests are that is so yeah. good yeah that's that's a great point and i like how you said that you have the truth on your side i often think of that you know it's it's actually if you do your homework it's pretty easy to win those arguments you know as far as If you're if you're wanting to argue with somebody who believes in regenerative ag or sustainable ag and somebody who doesn't, you can point to a long list of reasons for why your standpoint is factually correct. Yeah. And more
0: people need to just get get a little bit of guts to do this and a little bit of guts to speak up because you've lived a lot of these hunters or farmers or conservationists they've been in this world for a long time you know the information now it's just saying okay I'll, I'm willing to discuss it or debate it or whatever and more of this the more that this can take place in public um, social media wherever and the people are expressing their views uh, they can win the debate I mean I debate any of these issues if the special interest said, a, we want to do this and you know um like the crossbow lobby i got to debate the their lobbyists at the capitol um i'll debate any of these guys because they don't have the facts on their side they just they just have a paycheck mm-hmm. uh that drives them i've got the mm-hmm. information uh i care about it. i'm not looking to make money but we we have the facts on our side and the more people that do that um we we can win these issues and and we can actually make some advancements instead of taking all these steps back on a lot of these issues now there is a lot of issues that that we're making big advancements on though too i mean the conservation stuff the farming practices uh prairie restoration the stuff you guys do crp um you know carbon sequestration all that stuff i mean uh there's a lot of positive things that are changing for the better as well so i'm definitely not painting a negative picture here whatsoever um it's just how do we change things that are, are problematic and there is there's definitely a solution for it.
1: Yeah. Yep, for sure. So, you know, that was that was an awesome segment to this whole interview there, just talking about why Yeah, that could be it, its own podcast. Yeah, while well, well, we're talking <laughs> you know, we we joke sometimes that Iowa is the whitetail state, but we, but we really are. You know, some other things that we could put on there too is it's very challenging to come hunt Iowa as a non resident during uh the rut which is another par- part of that point we uh, only allow bow hunting during our our uh, peak rut time frame and um, we also uh, you know as far as the crossbows go it's limited to people who you know have some kind of disability or It's a
0: way this is the way it should be.
1: Right, exactly. Seniors disabled or you, uh, you can, can use a crossbow. Or you can use it when uh, you're giving up the chance to use a muzzle loader. Yeah. And, use it late season. Yep, late season muzzle loader. And
0: here's the funny part is you can look at Iowa, and anybody with just a drop of common sense around the country can say, yeah, Iowa's regulations are by far the best. Mm-hmm. What, why wouldn't other states copy this? Right. We do not have a patented regulation system. Right. Please copy us. And, like, I want these other states to copy us even if i'm never going to go there i don't have a selfish interest in here here i want states to be better because i know what it's like i know what it's like to hunt a dozen different states and i was by far run the best um kansas used to be right up there it still is pretty darn good but um you know i'd love to see kansas make some changes and get better even if i never went there again just for the new hunters for for access to quality land and you know you go across to missouri which is substantially degraded from iowa and what's the result because i'm there all the time the land is far more leased up the outfitting is prevalent all over it's more about money it's over the counter tags it's rifles in the middle of the road it's a disaster mm-hmm. it's a disaster so why wouldn't you copy your neighbors and you'll get guys that poo-poo the idea and say well you can't do this can't do that can't why why it's not it's not correct we have mm-hmm. we have better solutions on every level yeah. If you were to copy our regulations. so, um, but but all these states, in a sense, because we have such good regulations here, uh, and we get we get the amount of pressure that we do from people in other states, it almost punishes us because so many people want to come here because they ruin their own states. It's like, man, we ruined our state. I got to get the heck out of here and come to Iowa, and I almost gets punished for it. So. Um, there is a, a tipping point where we can't handle it, and I would say we're past that point. I mean, the, the residents are, are having a tough time finding places to hunt right now, quality places. So, yeah. the, the, the real solution is some of these other states have got to get their act together and fix it. It, it has to happen. It will happen eventually. I've talked about this one before, but um, some of these other states have to copy some of what has made iowa or kansas or some of the other other states successful and it's mm. actually very
1: simple yeah yeah very well said and and hopefully if you're listening to this and you're from one of those states and then you'll go back to the part where nick and skip talked about the need to get active and let your voice be known and uh you know get a rallying cry going with other like-minded people from your hunting community you are at and if you're from iowa like the three of us are keep what's great great you got to fight to do that because uh there is you know there's there's a resource here and whenever somebody sniffs out a resource uh that doesn't have the longevity of that resource in mind then uh they see it for short-term profit and they will keep their mining uh, pickaxe at the ready until they get the chance to start digging Mm -hmm. and uh that that will happen if Uh, We don't continue to to stave it off. So, man, imagine going into nature,
2: into like the most wonderful, uh, secluded nature, hearing all those sounds, and then looking over at your kid and be like, "You hear that? That sounds like money." You know, you're just like, "My goodness, you that is so far off." There's a great,
1: there's a great scene that illustrates that exact thing in the. You guys ever seen the Ballad of Buster Scruggs? There's a. uh, watch it sometime if you haven't. I've seen it's it. It's a Cohen brothers. And it's on. Uh, used to be on Netflix. I think Netflix produced it, but an uh, excellent film. Um, but it's like six like uh, old west scenario like oh, storylines. Yeah, yeah, and there's one where this old gold miner walks into it's probably like the Yosemite Valley, and uh, he's a he's an old gold miner, so he kind of knows what he's doing. But it's pristine, virgin wilderness. You know, everything is like Nick just said, you know, quiet, peaceful, you hear all the nature sounds. There's like a, you know, nice deer out drinking from this perfectly clear creek when he walks out there. And what does he do? He instantly instantly pitches his tent, sets up camp, starts digging holes, you know, test holes looking for gold. And he digs way back into that pristine valley. And uh it's not long before, you know, somebody finds him there and they start looking at what they can gain too and and so, uh, it, it's, it's a human good, nature. Yep. It's a, it's an illustration of, you can just look at it as what can this give me? And, um, you know, and to some extent we do need to look at it like that, like, cause we got to sustain ourselves, but don't look at how rich can it make me just, just look at how can this sustain me? Maybe is a better way to say that. And, uh, you know, then you'll realize that you gotta, you gotta give and take with nature and from a hunting standpoint that's part of it as well and uh, you you can't just always be taking off the land you got to be giving back to it and of course nick and i we do that you know we we mostly preach that ha- well and really skip to in a lot of ways preach the habitat side of that but also there's very much so a political side of that too where you have to you have to put on your political activist hat and uh, you got to get the work done in those fields as well.
0: And a lot of times it's people chasing after that last dollar. Like, listen, mm-hmm. you could get $220 to rent your farm out for somebody to farm. Or you could get $190 to put it into CRP. Okay, that's a $30 difference. Some people say, I have to have the $30. Do you really have to have it? And do you realize there's a cost to that $30? You know, they're tearing mm. up your soil. You're out yeah. of erosion. Um and by putting it into CRP, what are you gaining by retaining that soil and yep. actually building that soil? Yeah, and people don't understand that stuff, you know, it's a 30 difference. And actually, what I would say the guy that puts it into CRP for 190 versus 2, 220 or whatever that figure I just said, um, is actually money ahead because he's, yeah. he's oh, yeah, improving his soil quality, he's, he's improving the enjoyment of his land. He can go out and pheasant hunt, he could, he could, uh you know have have good nesting area you could have deer in there so there's a value to that too um so i i just think a lot of the problems come down to when everybody's just wants to chase the last dollar and it's like yep. some of the guys around here that put their their ground up for rent on an auction and one guy bids them out by 20 bucks and they don't realize that that guy doesn't take great care of the ground he, yeah. he really isn't putting no, out the proper nothing
2: parties like a rental
0: yeah nothing yeah parties so like a rental. You know, it's just a mindset and understanding you don't have to have that last dollar. And sometimes you're probably better off for not taking it. In a lot of cases when it comes to conservation or farming or hunting. I mean, I could go outfit hunts on my Farm this year, if or any year, if I wanted to, I could sure. make a fortune. It'd ruin my farm. It'd ruin it, and it'd ruin what I want to do. But you could make a lot of money. Yeah, it's not about that. Right. Again, it's not about that. I will never take a dollar to hunt here. I have never taken a dollar to hunt my farm. I will never take a dollar to hunt my farm. It's not about money, and I don't need that last dollar.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very. Very well said. Whatever that last dollar's worth, the keeping it, keeping it. Uh, how it is, is worth so much more. Absolutely. So skip deer hunting is obviously something you're very uh, passionate about. Um, I am as well. Uh, it's, it's something that, uh, really is more, I think a lot of people that don't hunt look at it as, oh, that's their hobby. Uh, No, it's kind of your lifestyle and, uh, it shapes, you know, it shapes how you do things. One time I was doing a podcast a few years ago and I just started to think how many pairs of clothes do I own? or like, a, you know, shirts and stuff that have at least one antler somewhere on that on that clothing item. And then I started like counting in my head just off the shirts that I commonly wear. It, it was ridiculous. It's something that you, when you really get into it, you identify with. It becomes no your, your identity, you know. Yeah. But you've also, through that, become a farmer, kind of accidentally.
0: They go hand in hand. Yeah. They it, really do. They yeah. go hand in hand yeah gathering so
2: hunting gathering and farming man it goes back like ten thousand years
0: <laughs> and there is a lot of people who don't get into that part of it or they're like yeah i do food plots i'd rather even pay somebody to put my food plots and some people are just not good at growing things mm. you know and there's things i'm not good at like uh go rehab a house go flip a house uh i would literally probably flip that house it would fall down (laughs) i'm terrible at it i mean there's things i'm horrible at but i'm very very good at growing things um and if you have that natural ability the two go hand in hand and forestry management uh compared to deer management they're very similar Hmm. there's a lot of parallel similarities between those two so the natural um You know combination of farming and forestry management all the things that go around whitetails just i mean it just blends perfectly and that's why it becomes a 365 day i mean i don't spend that quite that much time on it i try and take some breaks but i mean 330 days out of the year i'm out here doing stuff um i'm working i'm farming i'm you know whatever it is forestry projects or my fruit tree nurseries or whatever it is there's a a gazillion things to do um so yeah they, they match up perfectly um and how did you get in how did you jump into farm? yeah yeah how did you end up with that oh okay so really i'll speed this up as fast as i can so maybe to 10 years old i'm guessing uh i had a little garden in the city and then and then i got into deer hunting and i put a little food plot in the middle of the woods and nothing grew and then <laughs> uh i mean i was awful I was terrible and then <laughs> when i bought my first farm um even this is 20 years ago the food plots were cr- crazy big back then people think it's a recent thing in the last 10 years no we, people yeah. were obsessed about it 20 years ago just a little different but um so i wanted food plots back then and i wanted to do them successfully so i got successful food plots 20 years ago and then you know, I didn't like the way some of the farmers did corn or beans or this or that. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to do it on my own. And eventually my corn and beans on a plot, which is not that hard to do, but they turned out better than the farmers because, you know, I could take the extra time to baby it. And then I just said, well, if I can baby these plots, why can't I baby a field and do it like this on a field? And I did it on a field and they turned out really, really well. And then I just realized if, if, my fields can turn out really, really well. Why can't I do this for a living? And then I just kept increasing it. I just saw an opportunity to increase, increase, increase. Um, and I did. And then, you know, I did have a setback in there where commodity prices went in half and that kind of, uh, set me back in my chair a little bit, but, um, you know, I just adjusted, I just adjusted and changed my path. And, um, you know, in, in certain years now I'll farm a lot, certain years I won't farm as much. If I got a lot of stuff I'm putting into CRP one year, then I'll rent more out. If I'm done planting CRP that year, not a lot of projects, I'll farm more. It depends on commodity prices. It depends on a lot of things, but you are the most flexible farmer I
2: have. I, Cause we've talked about this a little bit before. Um, I haven't. I don't think I've talked to any other farmer that does things like large amounts of land like that on a year-to-year basis. Most of them are locking in like five or ten-year things, and and it's just really cool to see that. Oh, this this can be done. This can happen on a year-to-year basis. It's got
1: almost to be an advantage that you are a first-generation farmer, you know, where you are, where you. I didn't you learn under, the you bad under, habits. You, yeah, you understand conventional ag, but you weren't brought up in conventional yes, ag. There's
0: there's a lot of bad habits I didn't learn. Now there's a lot of good simple things I didn't learn too. So it's a double edged right. sword. I did right. a lot of stupid, stupid things.
2: What was your biggest? We talk about this all the time at Hoxie. Peyton and I go back and forth on who's made the biggest mistake money wise. Me. Uh, other far, what? 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 What is the? What's the?
0: The biggest money mistake you've made for I'm farming. just going to come up with something so obscure, and it, it, people will just laugh at this. Like I remember when I started doing things, like bigger scale, somebody's like, uh, when's the last time you greased this? I said, what are you talking about? Oh. They're like, you got to hit these grease circs every... I'm like, what's a grease circ?
2: Oh, no. I mean, this is when I was younger. I'm like, yeah. what
0: are you talking about? I hadn't been greasing anything. And things are just breaking left and right. Like you weren't greasing all this stuff. No. Just dumb. Yeah. Ken yeah. spent half his summer last summer
2: greasing. Yeah, a- tens
0: and tens of thousands of dollars because I didn't grease uh, Yeah, Now I learned that lesson one time and I got laughed at. Like, you don't know a grease are? <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't I don't. And uh, yeah. that was a long time ago. I learned that lesson really hard uh one year and then i've religiously greased things ever since yep dude uh, when i was a when i when i was a kid when i was like in high school
2: greasing things we had like a hand pump one they had to do yeah, I got yeah it nice. comes in I all this spoiled he comes in with this like button this automatic Milwaukee. Oh, yeah. Milwaukee, You know, great. i have
0: both but sometimes i got i've got the um the hand pump one with a locking jaw on the tip where it just it can grease things that are tough to grease where it won't yeah. take grease. I'll put that one on with the hand. Oh, yeah. And then
1: I've got the electric greaser. Um, and the other bad thing too is when you got like a plug Zert and uh, all that pressure that builds up in the line, that back yeah. pressure. And then you're like, all right, going to pull that off. And it's like, <laughs> it's stuck on there. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I spent a half a day
0: on a new piece of machinery that I got used uh, about a month ago that, I bet there was fifteen grease serks on it in weird places that would not take grease, and I had to get them out of there, clean the whole oh. system out, try a new grease sirk, still wouldn't take grease, flush it out. I mean, j- oh. just a pain in the butt. So yep. little stuff like that. Um, people think uh, farmers have it easy, and I guess some do. I I don't. I mean, some people. Oh man, they got it easy. <laughs> I don't. I I mean, I'm sure there are there are guys that do, but. There's not a day that goes by without a lot of work, some frustration. Um, I mean, right now I'm looking at my pants. There's grease all over my pants, hydraulic fluid. I've usually got <laughs> it on my face. My face is yeah. dusty. Um, I'm dirty. I'm scrubbing up in the shower at the end of the night just like, ugh. And, and I'm exhausted, you know. At the end of the day, I'm absolutely exhausted. But you know, And I'm not the traditional farmer where I just get into a tractor and hit my guidance system. I mean, I have that you know, and I have GPS on my tractor and auto steer, but, but I'm also out, all of a sudden, boom, I'm done with that. And I'm working on my trees or, uh, I'm running a skid steer, I'm mulching with it, or, um, you know, I'm putting up deer, a a deer stand. I'm whatever. I mean, there's just a million different things. The list is probably several hundred items. And, and that list of what I have to do that I write down, um, that list is, I'll I'll never get it done. (sighs) And I always just have. I was telling you guys earlier. I always have to take the top of that list and work off the top. These are the mm-hmm. most pressing. And there's mm-hmm. things at the bottom that every year are just going to get neglected and not quite done right. So, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to improve on that every year. But um, and I'm my own worst enemy. I mean, everybody says uh, I don't know what the saying they use. Um, uh, basically, I, I inflict this on myself. Ah. Like you know, you you cause all your own yeah. problems here. You know, like instead of ordering. Uh, you know 20 fruit trees i mean like, no let's get 2000 fruit trees did you do when did you how many trees did you try and grow your first time
2: you grew trees cuz i heard you on a podcast one time be like don't do any more than 50 but probably 20 don't
1: 20. you shout that podcast my, i was the exodus oh, podcast oh yes yeah,
0: yeah so, yep, so my yeah exodus um Great guy. so my first tree planting i bought a tree planter and i ordered uh Ooh, over 10,000 trees.
2: Oh, my goodness, Skip. Yeah. Oh.
0: And they actually turned out well. Oh, but I word. saw, even then, I saw, like, I could see how this wouldn't go well for certain people. Oh how and long did that take you to put them in? 10,000 with a three-point um, planter and a buddy, a buddy of mine. We He bought 10,000 and I bought 10,000. So we had 20,000. And the deal was, we'll do them on my farm and his. Uh, it probably took... Maybe three or four days, four days probably, like solid days to do ten thousand. Maybe five. Goodness, Uh, we were going. Oh, and I mean, we did a good job though. I mean, there's that's a forest now. You know, that was twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, that's a forest now. It was successful. Um, now I wouldn't do that. You know, for a normal normal person who. Uh, wants to learn how to plant trees don't do it i did
1: the, the way that works right it's kind of kind of cuts a, a groove behind yeah. the tractor and then you got a guy sitting on a seat yep. almost like our plug planter it's yep. ju- it's just
0: like a corn planter really it's just larger scale sure. what does a corn planter do it has an opener or you've got yep. a no-till cutter or you've got a row cleaner and then you have your opener yep. and then your seed drops down and then you have two closing wheels well yep. a tree planter is the exact same way it's just a lot bigger it goes a lot deeper and you're putting trees in and not corn. And you just, you know, you got to be conscious about how you set your roots in there, so they're they're flared in in a natural fashion. They're not J rooted and tipped up stuff like that. And then you know where your soil line is, and you're not putting too too deep or too shallow. And then you go back through all these rows and check them to make sure they're sealed right. And you know, and and I burn mine down with herbicides in advance, and I do proper weed control. And if oh, there's yeah, a drought, weird, I water them. Yeah. Yeah. How did you water ten thousand trees? Did you just pray for rain, or yeah. And I built, I built up the organic matter. I picked really good soils. Uh, there's some different things guys can do. Some people would do rye and crimp it over. You had um, good
2: soil. and You didn't use
0: it for corn. Yeah. What are you doing? Skip? Yeah, he could have made an extra couple hundred dollars. Uh, he, was,
1: he was unbulldozing ground. That's yeah, a, yeah that's no, right. I, I had the first. I had people
0: pulling up at my house yelling at me. I had one farmer yelling at me. Uh, Oh my goodness. Tells me I got no business with that tree planter in this neighborhood and he's bulldozing trees out and I'm bringing them in and, uh i'm usually yeah I, i've done the opposite of what a lot of farmers <laughs> have done many many times oh that man. is a badge
1: of honor when somebody's yelling at you for that that's something oh, I, that was
0: that was an easy one you're just beaming with a smile yep. <laughs> oh man yes you yes. changed my mind yep. <laughs> yeah sure. that's right yep <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep. thanks for sharing your feelings with me you really got me yeah I no mean, that's but, that's awesome but i think they do a lot of things wrong i mean they put Uh, they put cows in their timber when they don't realize they have three thousand dollar walnut trees in there, gorgeous white oak trees or they put so many cows in there that there isn't good quality trees anymore and my forest is properly managed it's a retirement plan plus some oh yeah i'll be able to utilize that before i'm retired i already have uh and they're completely neglecting that or letting it go to waste so you know, there's a lot of conventional practices I just think are, are really problematic,
1: uh or, or extremely wasteful at best. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very well very well said and a lot of a lot of different things to take apart there and learn from. You know, I love that idea of a retirement plan with your trees. You're right, most people don't view that part of the that part of their ground as having that kind of value. Now I do think uh we talked with Steve Hansen, who's a mutual friend of all of us here. Um he talked about when he was getting into uh, buying up farm ground here in Iowa. He he was there in time. He's like, I see how this is about to take off. I'm getting in now. And um, we talked about and we you and I kind of talked about this too today, Skip, when we were driving around, just what the price of land was when when you were first getting into it and um, how it was mostly that marginal ground that can't be row cropped people saw that as having no value but then when you look at it from okay what is the timber value when you when you get that Oregonian perspective right you know go pretend you come from a logging state for a second here you know I can see all this value in that ground that uh, can't be row crop. it's a ravine that's got a bunch of oaks and walnuts and and uh, uh chestnuts growing in there well probably not so many chestnuts in old ground those are those are going to be a, a replant usually of some asian uh species because of the ch- the chestnut blight but you know hickory or or uh, even you know a few other hardwoods that you can get some value off of um you can look at that ground and be like, "Yeah, that is a legitimate. Maybe not right now, but eventually, a legitimate crop um, that you could harvest when you're in your, you know, your old age and you bring in a logging company to do all the work for you." Now, there's a smart way to do that too, right, uh, Skip? You got to be smart about no doubt. What-
0: so I, there are some studies. This is going back ten and twenty years. I can't remember where I read them. It might be in the state of Iowa, but loosely and i'm making these figures up but i'm certainly not far off there were studies that shown that showed midwest timber and i believe it was iowa unmanaged timber averages around uh i think it was on a 15 year cycle maybe it was a 20 year cycle but like 150 to 200 dollars per acre um income and maybe it was a little more than that but something like that managed correctly you know and and i'm not sure how back they started the management but you can get timber to produce $150, $200 to go to like tenfold, like 1500 to 2000 managed correctly. Wow. Now, how many people manage it correctly? Very, very, very few. 0.00, 00 something percent. I mean, it's, I, I rarely see it managed correctly. Where does, that, where does that extra income come from? It's allowing your... So several, several different areas. One, it's changing the composition of your timber. A lot of this timber, especially after the Great Depression, was has been high-graded over and over and over. They take the best logs out of there and they leave the garbage. So mm. you get into some pieces of timber, and I see this all the time, it's just garbage left. If you take the best stuff out yeah. and it's not reproducing and you continue to take the best stuff out and you let the garbage flourish, you're just going to have garbage. It's going to be worth nothing. Now, so... If you change that composition to high-value species, even you know more valuable to wildlife or, or just having diversity, there's benefits there. But you get your high-quality, high-dollar species in there, and it can be a component of any farm, even if it's not good for deer. There's absolutely still a place for it. So then when you have your high-quality species, now you pick out your... You know your top end specimen. I mean your your premier veneer trees, your top end high quality trees. It's just like it's just like deer saying, "Hey, this deer at three and a half has a hundred and fifty inch rack um, versus another one that has a hundred inch rack. Well, which one has more potential? Which one's superior? Yeah. You know, in my mind, clearly the hundred and fifty inch uh, three year old. Well, there's trees that are just like that. So managing those, babying those, cutting the junk back that is competing against them. And those trees can grow at, you know, two times the rate and they're also reproducing and they're changing your forest composition. Mm. So I do the exact opposite with my forest that everybody else has done. Everybody else will high grade, take the best trees out. I take all the junk out and I, I free up my best quality trees and I do not log those. That's why I'm like, I tell people, do not log your farm the first year. I mean, there is a, a few cases where you're like, yeah, they're ready to go. Some of these trees are going hollow, but I would rather take out your poor quality stuff and get rid of it and let your your best genetic trees reproduce, reseed for several years before you log those. And when you do log mm-hmm. them, you're still just taking a, a portion of them. You're not taking all of them because you want to change the genetics in your timber. You want to change the composition of your timber. You want to change the quality. And the second you top end your timber... You're doing what everybody else has done and you will by definition be left with junk. So I want to leave my timber vastly better than what I found it. And you can speed that up immensely through proper timber practices, which is very difficult. It's a long subject. Um, A big can of worms there, but just get a forester out at your property, get, get the state forester out there, get a plan uh, and then start executing on that plan. Anybody can do that. And that's where you should start. Um, I, I, I would say 1% of the time I would take that advice of, hey, I buy this ground, and the first thing I'm going to do is log it. Mm. I understand why people do it, and I understand why I can get that money, and I can get that money tax-free, which is true, uh, as long as you don't sell the farm later. But there are so many disadvantages to immediately logging your farm, and I would not do that. And that's going to vary from some other people's opinions, but I have a laundry list of reasons why the first thing I, I w- would not do is is log my farm. That is five, six, seven years down the road before you log your farm, unless you have trees that are just needing to come out, and you do it extremely conservatively. Yeah. Well, actually, a fun little thing I've been talking about, and I got
2: set straight today <clears throat> twice, is I've been saying, wouldn't it be cool if you got an acre to five acres and you just got some great walnut trees on, on those acres? And I'm like, obviously they take 60, 75 years to grow up. So you're not, I'm not looking at getting money, but then it's an asset to the bank and you're adding some, just uh, some
1: just If, some you're, if your banker's great... a
2: forester. Yeah, yeah. Well, but then Kent was like, nah, dude, do chestnuts. You can get, you can get money every year from the chestnuts and um,
0: people can appreciate them more. Um, what if we get a third answer and you do both? i was um, gonna where, where ask, I, go. I was just gonna ask that. you could that. do both because um you know you can eat those those walnuts they're delicious i mean there's uses for the walnut hulls. Yeah, how many years does it take to get um fruit edible fruit off
2: a of walnut like the, of any volume
0: oh 10 years you'll have walnuts okay. um what about chestnuts one, t- chestnuts are gonna produce you know it's they'll three produce to five, in
1: isn't it what's that is it three to five yeah you'll
0: get production in three to five where it's substantial is probably 10 oh my gosh 10 years i mean blink your eye and 10 years goes by unfortunately and fortunately um yeah everybody i talked to that's talked about trees is still talking about it 10 years later and they're like ed i done it right away just do it right away do it right that's true um but i mean i would do both because you know i say we we said the chestnuts because that's a market that the demand is not met you know there's more demand than there is supply and the prices keep going up so that's a great thing to get into but with any business that's ever been like that the the supply ends up catching the demand i mean when everybody's talking about chestnuts chestnuts chestnuts, more people are planting them eventually when you're like hey i got mature trees now maybe the prices are down because so many other guys did it who knows but just have diversity and You know, you got walnuts, you got chestnuts, maybe you did hazelnut, maybe you did, you know, a lot of guys were doing that aronia berry, you know, big hype for a while, and I'm sure it still is, you know, I don't know Yeah, there's a farm out
2: uh, about 10 miles from where we're at, uh, aronia berry farm, but I think the person is very much a farmer and not a marketer, so they've had some
0: issues getting, getting their aronia berries moved. There's an issue with everything, everything that people say, you need to get into this, yeah if it's it's all it's a classic if it's too good to be true it probably is yeah i'm yeah. just gonna go plant a bunch of chestnuts i'm gonna be a multimillionaire. millionaire no it doesn't work that way yeah. and then you See, gotta harvest ruining my
2: dreams
0: yeah. you're ruining I my mean, dreams <laughs> it's all hard it's all but you know come up with five ideas like that you know yeah. chestnuts Walnuts and, and and even within the chestnuts, well, which chestnut would I plant? There's a Japanese variety that has a, a bigger, sweeter nut. There's a Korean variety. This and that. There's a fifteen sixteenths that's more like an American chestnut that's blight resistant. Will the American chestnut come back? Do I plant those? I mean, chestnuts a big can of worms too. So yeah, yeah. Um, so if I let's say
2: because um, this is this is kind of the dream, right? You get, I mean, you could get a big acreage. I'd love to get a small acreage. With a house, boom, five acres, maybe 10 acres. Do you think a uh, husband and wife could handle harvesting five to 10 acres of chestnuts and walnuts? Absolutely. Okay.
0: Yes. Now, I mean, the most profitable really for five acres? Because somebody goes, well, that's not going to produce for five or 10 years. And if you're not okay with that, I'm okay with that. And I'm okay, yeah. also okay with if it rains down chestnuts and I don't pick up a single one or I just pick up a few to eat and the critters eat them, that's okay with me too. I yeah. just like having them. But, you know, I mean, I'm, nothing I'm going to get into but probably local produce. You know, you got five acres and you can do, um, you can gl- grow different fruits and vegetables and stuff like that to sell, uh, locally, that's probably going to be your most profitable item in reality. Well, my grandpa was just
2: telling me there's a guy in California. He has one acre. He produces $100,000 of produce. He just does it really well on that one acre. Isn't that wild? I'm not that old, Nick. I was the <laughs> one that told you that. No, no, no. You told me about someone out in, like, New Jersey.
0: No,
1: no, this no. Is this a guy YouTube was channel. in
0: California. $100,000 on one acre? One acre Is organic. he in Columbia?
1: No. he's Coca in-
0: plants? no no no, no.
1: he's organic gardening oh and he had he had an acre of production and he'll multi-crop fields you know as far as like he'll get his early season stuff yeah harvest it and then he'll follow that up with a summer plant you know on on another species and uh, he goes to one farmer's market yeah every weekend during their season now granted this is a moderate moderate California where the farmer's market is. So oh, yeah, you were the person that told me that, about had, this. that had, yeah, he just referred to me <laughs> no, as it's grandpa. my well,
2: you're not my grandpa. You're roughly his age, so that's oh, what I got. That's where I got the mix up.
1: So no, the guy but he's doing that on one acre and he you know, he works thirty five hours a week to keep up on it. He does a lot of composting. You know, he gets a huge pile of compost that he's constantly building his soil back up after after harvest. But yeah, pretty pretty remarkable what he's achieving there on that piece but he's dedicating that's his full-time job is that yeah that acre
0: well i mean i've i've done stuff where i've had a pretty darn big garden weeding by hand that's a lot of work i mean i it is uh, we moved into a pretty a house with a pretty big yard and i i don't what'd you use to hoe it just to I did no-till, my, but I had a yard, and I said to my wife when we didn't have any kids, I'm like, yeah, let's just turn half the, gar- half the yard into a garden. I mean, I'll grow watermelons. You know how much space watermelons take up? A lot. Oh, yeah. yeah. I took half of my yard to turn into a garden, and I mean, I didn't think through this. Like, I don't think we need um, 40 watermelons. I don't think we need <laughs> 200 ears of corn uh so i was just giving most of it away and then very quickly i turned that back into uh to grass (laughs) like my my garden has shrunk every single year since then now it's the size of maybe like two pickup trucks well so i um i grew up had some really close friends my
2: younger brother one of one of the friends was his age, so we grew up hanging out, and they helped their parents in their garden every summer. And I remember thinking, like, they would literally work out in that garden six, seven hours a day yes. weeding, and then at the end of their summer, the parents would pay like 150 bucks. And I was like, oh my goodness, you're getting paid so much money. You know, it's like yeah. basically slave labor. I mean, it was great for them, and they and they're they're great guys, but. I was talking to one the other day and he was like, oh yeah, they don't make money off of that. They just do it more as a hobby. It basically even, it doesn't even pay for their like minimum wage for their hours.
0: Yeah, His parents, look, it, look at, if you look at the trees behind me, I'm at about a hundred varieties of apples. I'm probably at 20 varieties of pears, four to five varieties of chestnuts, three crab apple, two types of persimmon uh dwarf chinkapin oak chinkapin oak uh hybrid oak and peaches are you gonna Uh, open that up at all for people to come in uh i I don't know but but there's no money coming from that zero and it's hemorrhaging money because i spent a fortune on that um again not thinking about this in advance just yeah let's just put uh let's put a 13 acre high fence up deer can't get in there and I'll have a big, big orchard. Yeah, I mean, It's not using my head. Uh, mowing it takes a day. Um, yeah,
2: but... I wish know. you guys could see it because it is quite the view. Yeah. We're out at Skip's place right now and he's got these two giant windows. You see his orchard and then on the other side of that you see this beautiful timber and there are hills. There's rolling hills. So on some of those hills you can see prairie that he's planted. He does a great job with his prairie planting. Yeah,
1: which is what we need to we need to transition that part of the conversation too. And, and you might be wondering, okay, skip you're you're planning this ground that, you know, like you just said, it's just costing you money. You're not getting anything. How much ground are you able to, you know, to just give up to something that doesn't, that doesn't profit you. And the answer is as much as he wants to, uh, skip has done a great job buying and selling land. That's been a, that's been a big part of uh, your professional career now since you moved to Iowa, and um, you know what? What? What's your advice on that for the average person? They say, you know, you're so lucky, Skip. You know, you probably inherited all this ground from your <laughs> great grandpa, <laughs> yeah. and you. I wish yeah. you guys could have heard his stories
2: because he did not come from just like a land grabbing money no. family. No, food, we the, didn't food. have any money.
1: Yeah, yeah, you and saying, also we you might be saying this. You you talked about how you guys had to use food stamps growing up. Yeah, yeah it was bad. And and now, how do you mind saying how many acres you? A lot. He's in, the, got, in, in the thousands. The thousands so, and it built up from square zero. Yeah, so it started with eighty
0: acres twenty years ago, and then built into this. And I mean, I didn't I didn't do this by design. I knew I wanted to own land, but I just kept buying farms that I loved. And I'm like, man, this is the farm to have. And then I would put everything I had into those farms. And then it just turns out like somebody else is like, whoa, I really like what you did with this farm. Would you take this for it? And then I'm like, well, I could buy something closer to home. And now because you're going to pay me that, I could buy something bigger. And I could buy something that I could fix up. So I'm buying it cheaper. Okay. And I just kept repeating that process yeah over and over and then you know one that i didn't plan for this but i had a whole bunch of farms uh in southeast iowa um that were just fixed up immaculately they were amazing they were just it was awesome and then i met uh i met my wife and realized, whoa, we're, we're going to move way away from those farms. And we're going to have kids. And it didn't make sense for me to own these farms that far away. So I'm like, okay. And I sold them all. And they were all done. So I got kind of a premium price for them. Because I put, you know, the amount of hours I put into these is, is staggering. And then I bought everything closer to home. And I could buy so many more acres uh, with the money. And And then I just, you know, put everything I had into those. Uh, and they and because they were closer i could do more to them i could be there more frequently um again I, i actually bought those to keep them and some of those you know well all that round actually uh i ended up selling all those a few years later again after completely transforming these farms it's not like just buying something and putting it for sale sign on it a week later i mean i gutted these farms it'd be like buying a house that was dilapidated raccoons are living in it all the windows are smashed out um and and gutting it and you're talking it about sp- my house man house. so yeah that's what i did with farms is the same what people do with houses gut them uh i did that with farms i just totally transformed them And then people are like, listen, this is what I want. I don't want to gut a farm. I don't want to tear a farm to shreds. I don't know how to do all these things. So I'll pay you because you have the end product. And it it wasn't a business plan at the time. It just, it just happened that that's just how it worked out. So I guess I'm lucky in that, in that part of it, that it was not a plan. It was not a plan. It just kind of happened. Yeah. And now I can make it a plan and There's occasions where I'll buy a farm that needs a lot of work. I'll do it. Um, And then if I sell that farm, usually I'll I'll buy farms far away, fix them up, and then when one of my neighbors wants to sell, I usually have to pay probably too much. And then I'll sell one of my distant farms uh, that I fixed up, and then I just 1031 into my neighboring farms. And that's pretty much my business plan now. Man,
2: I— what's really cool about the story you just told is that uh, it encourages people that uh, people are willing to pay for things done right for yep. like doing good, you know, on, on, when you first started, I bet you weren't thinking like, man, someone's going to pay me a real premium for this. You know, you were just some kid out there trying to do, do what was best for the land and have a good place to be. And, and then, um, and that's what, Oh, I, I forget. It might be, it might be John C. Maxwell or something. I was reading some book of his, and he said, if you do something you love and it's good for other people and you do it well, someone will find you to
0: pay you. No somebody doubt. will find you to pay no you. No doubt. And oh, you worst. know, I, I could lay it out as a business plan for somebody, but if you don't love land and you don't love fixing it up – you're not going to be successful at it, so find what you love. Because they're not going to put in those 12-hour days that you put in for exactly. years. Exactly. Yeah, people, yeah, it must be nice owning that land, uh, da-da-da-da, <laughs> whatever. Whatever comment somebody wants to make, they, they have no clue the amount of work if they're making those comments because the people who have done this won't make those kind of comments. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's extremely hard work. There is a lot of stresses that go along with this. Um, I enjoy it. Fundamentally, I love it. Um, but there's days where man, it's it's a headache that day. It's it, there's things that go wrong constantly. So the farming is easy thing. I mean, like I said, maybe a conventional farmer. What I do, it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. Uh, it's grueling. But yeah, I mean, if somebody said, you know, uh, all farmers are rich, it's easy. Okay, go do it then. Go for yeah, it. Yeah. But yeah. but if somebody said, is it possible to get into farming from scratch? Absolutely, it is. Absolutely, mm. you could be broke. And if you have a drive, a passion, um, you're willing to work, you know, you've got a self-drive, you could
1: absolutely do this. You could, you could. What's the best financial side of that? So, so if somebody is, you know, they do come from nothing and they want to – I mean, first of all, a lot of it's probably got to be expectations, right, as to what, what they can get into at a starting point. But um, how, would you, how would you coach up? somebody who's coming from Michigan comes to Iowa right now in in 2023 and they want to do what skip did 20 some years ago. How would you coach them up on the financial side of that to get started?
0: Just get a chunk of money down where I'm going to imagine the banks are going to want 30% save as much as you can. So you can put 30% down on a farm. Ideally I would like to see somebody buy 30 acres or more. Clearly, the more, the better. Clearly, the more you can put down, the better. And buy something that needs work. And if you're someone who can fix it up, who can figure it out, I mean, I had to figure this out from scratch. I didn't know how to fix Mm -hmm. a farm up. I didn't know how to plant this stuff. I mean, you can figure this stuff out. Certain people, this is not the right thing for. But if you're able to do that, if you're willing to learn it, and you can find a farm that needs work, and you make it better... And then you take the next step where you don't marry that farm and you're like, listen, I want to get bigger. Um, Sell it and buy something else that needs a lot of work and go put in a lot of work into that. Mm. Uh, I mean, the amount of work I've done on farms is, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. I mean, my body has taken definitely a toll from this and I'm okay with that. I mean, it's a trade off to anything, you know, um, I could have sat on the couch the whole time and traded stocks on my computer or something. I mean, I don't, it wouldn't have been hard on my body. I, I wouldn't have wanted to do that. I would have failed miserably because um, I'm not passionate about that. You know, if I if I wanted to go invest in stocks, I I probably would lose my money more times than not. Uh, I don't care about it. I can't control it. It's not my comfort level. And at the same time, there's a lot of people who shouldn't be buying land. It's, they're not wired for it. They're mm. not wired for the headaches. They're not wired for the workload. They're not yeah. wired for the stresses. So, But for the portion that is, if you're wired that way, absolutely. Get your money together. Um, how shall I say this? I'll just say it, and you can bleep this out if you need to, but um, just get the balls and do it. Just yeah, get some balls, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to sign this paper. As long as it makes sense, you're not paying some obscene figure. Man, things are going for five, and I paid this guy ten because he gave me a good sales pitch. I mean, don't be stupid about it. Yeah. But when you find the right buy, get the balls and do it. Pull the yeah. trigger. And that well- takes... There's a lot of people that are big talkers with land, big talkers and then when you put a contract in front of them, eh, they find a reason not to do it. So
2: Well, there's I one of the biggest things I think was right at the beginning, you were like save as much as you can to get that 30. The what I think kills people from being able to make that first step is they see a real nice shiny new truck. Oh, it's only gosh. $700 a month, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They got the new truck. They got the nicest TV. They're paying rent at a place that's probably a little, little too high for them. They bought a house at the maximum, the bank. So they could, so there is no savings account. All right. Really, I'm going to just know?
0: defend most of the people listening right now. I'm just going <laughs> to do it. Um, you start out with a truck on a payment. You're not buying land. You're done. And you're setting Ooh. you're setting the course up for the next decade, two oh. decades, three decades of your life by yeah. doing that skip never get out of it. I know people who never get out of that cycle. you just
2: ruined yeah. several people's day that are no yeah, we used
1: to plans. we used to do car payments and one of, that was one of the best decisions my wife and I ever did was. Get out of that! There are good used vehicles out there for a fraction of the price. We were all just joking around (laughs) before we started uh, recording today. Uh, Some of some of Skip's uh, workers here were were talking with us. We were talking about how old our vehicles are. You know, take pride in stuff like that because it frees up so much money to go yeah. to something that you would rather have yeah now know. maybe maybe that is more important to you than owning land is to own a yeah the, 100- that's not the wrong thing right i'm but,
0: not saying it's wrong i'm just saying if you take that path don't expect to buy land right yeah right yep that's all i'm yeah. saying so my, i have good friends i have people that are wonderful people that buy new vehicles and have payments on them you know buying a vehicle with no payment is very very different than buying a vehicle with a payment um buying a vehicle with a payment you know oh, it's 700 bucks what's your gas well there's another 300 what's your insurance that's another 100 what's your uh maintenance on that eventually you're going to have maintenance on it it's going to come on warranty tires? <laughs> yeah and, <laughs> oh, and then goodness. how much is it going down in value and you say well it's going down in value 500 bucks a month you started adding that all that up you're talking fifteen hundred dollars a month on a stupid vehicle Oh
2: yeah. yeah. Which is like two rent payments in, yeah. in most of it's, Iowa. It's yeah. insane.
0: It's insane and those are the people uh, sometimes those are the people like I can't buy land and uh I don't have all the you, the luck that you ha- other people have or whatever. Yeah. No, it's not luck. It's that that like I said I'm going to take some people off with that one. Uh, sometimes sorry, good. But, sometimes it's good to hear um, the hard truth But though. you know, let's just say you buy a piece of junk, a piece of garbage uh for 2 grand that is embarrassing to look at, which I don't really care. Um, and you're like, geez, every year I'm going to have to spend $2,000 on maintenance. And, and a lot of times it isn't like that. If you buy like an old Toyota, like I got sitting out there, it hardly on. ever breaks. Oh yeah. So even if you spent two grand a year just fixing it up and you're like, the cars only worth two grand. And I still spent two grand fixing up, which maybe you don't do that exactly, but you're still money ahead. Yeah. Just yeah. don't have a car Fair. payment, uh, payments, yeah. uh, payments on anything. Fundamentally, the only thing I would suggest having a payment on is is a farm and you know maybe a house um i had a farm payment before i had a house payment i mean i lived in a little box just because i was never around i was single um it was just a roof and i crashed there at night uh and i was out working so you know i lived in the cheapest apartment i could and i had a farm payment at the time when i started uh, so just keep your expenses low. Have don't be afraid to spend money on your land yeah. and improvements on your land, and you're able to do that by not having all these crazy other expenses yeah. that people have in life. And um,
2: we've been talking about a bunch of different topics from from hunting and farming and, and buying land. Um, I listened to a podcast called Founders, real big popular podcast where this guy just goes through biographies and autobiographies of the most influential powerful and rich people that have lived in the past, like 400 years. And he said that he lists like three things that he thinks almost every single one of them has in common. And they all, and one of them is they all started really frugal. You do not have to live very frugal. We're just saying, if you don't, if you start from no money and you want to get where you are um, comfortable or better off without, you know, like cutting corners and stuff like that, if you want to do it honest Frugal is part of it.
0: I'm still frugal. Yeah. I'm still frugal. The one, the one area I'm not frugal on is. Trees. Yeah. (laughs) Putting money into my farm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the tile I put in, the terracing, the stuff I do to save topsoil. Uh, The cover crops I put (laughs) in where they'll have a benefit down the road. No doubt about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fruit trees, uh, the timber practices that I do where I'm running, you know, that skid steer with that mulcher out there is not cheap. Yeah. Uh, and I mean that's not paying me to run it it's costing me to run it so yeah yeah um but I'm still frugal I mean I'm frugal with I mean <laughs> a lot of my clothes <laughs> <laughs> I had a shirt on the other day somebody goes oh I saw saw that game I didn't even know what shirt I was wearing it was like a 2012 baseball shirt I don't even know where it came from <laughs> there's certain things I just don't care and granted yeah. I'm married I'm 44. Uh, I don't care about certain things that are just waste of money. Um, oh, yeah. So, I mean, I after 20... Well, I mean, my whole life we had to think of money. Money. We don't have enough money to pay our bills when I was young. So, how do I save money on this? How do I save money on that? I've had to live that way since I remember. I mean, since I was a very, very little kid. Um, and I'm not going to change it just because things are more comfortable now. Now, I have... Even when I do get money now, I still... I am just smart about it. I just yeah. I don't spend them I spend my money on wasteful things. Yeah. And money snowballs. So no if
2: you save $10 today, that's $200 at the end of your life, you know. So I don't know. I I really really like the um the story you have going on here cuz you could look now, you could look at what you got now and be like, "Man, that guy or your neighbors could look at you and be like, that guy's got all the land, you know, around here. What a what a, but there's two things that I think heavily justify um, the property you ha- have around here. One, uh, it wasn't just given to you on a platter; you you earned it. And there is something about uh, some blood, sweat, and tears that makes me think that people, you know, uh, deserve things a little more. Second, you treat it well. That is another thing. A lot of people they they work really hard in their life, and then they get to a point where they quote unquote make it, and then they just start treating their employees like crap and and treating their assets like crap and you know spending all their money or or maybe they end up passing away and then their kids end up just treating it like crap yeah third, and, third
0: generation usually bankrupts a business oh yeah i mean second sustains it i don't know how the model works but usually, usually builds yeah, it, second two sustains it yeah. third third puts it down the tubes which well, i've seen that a
2: million times henry ford's grandkids had in their like corporate building they had their own like very high level chefs and they'd have servers come and serve the c-suite people lunch just like hamburgers but on like a platter with white gloves you know it's just like absurd stuff What,
0: what forced those kids of ford or whoever what forced those kids to have that fire to get up and work that that just natural almost like a panic almost like if i don't do this i'm not gonna make it Nothing. There's nothing that says if you don't work, you're going to be in big trouble. They never had that because they knew they would never be in big trouble. And I grew up where we were always in big trouble. We were always, we couldn't make our bills. We couldn't pay for this. So I've always had that and I've always had that instilled in me. And it's something I want to instill in my kids. You know, my kids are working. My my son's 12 years old. He's got eight lawn jobs right now. I mean, and he, he. he has a better work ethic than i did and that's that's the business i started when i was about 10 or 11 years old as lawn businesses um and i mean he's killing it and he's like hey dad uh i want to put this money away to save for land and he said that to one of his uh, lawn clients and they looked at him kind of funny you're like oh you're not going to use it for video games or that he's not saving for land and i said well how much do you want to put away? For, I said, well, how about if we put half of your money away for land? He says, why just half, Dad? I'll do all of it. I said, no. You, you I'm could, taking the other half as taxes for living in my house. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he wanted to put it all in. I'm like, no, you got to enjoy some of that money. You earned it. You got to enjoy it. Um, so he's gonna. But yeah, we he started a, I don't know, a mutual fund that my father-in-law takes care of um and he's putting that money away towards land and i'm just like listen and i tell i tell the neighbor kids that too i'm like listen if you start now because they they ask me about land all the time kids in the neighborhood and i'm like if you start at 12 or 13 or 14 by the time you're in your 20s do you know how far ahead you'll be oh yeah, yeah. oh what am
1: i especially with you know zero expenses right now living under a, oh yeah their parents roof one of my Bingo. best friends he didn't do it
2: with land he did it with houses he did it with real estate um residential real estate but he you know he'd he'd w- very hard working family worked all while he was a kid i think is when he was 6 his parents gave him a salary job to go clean their um laundry uh laundromat every single week or Just something is also the
1: hero that gave nick running water
2: yes yeah he flew he flew from Alabama like called me a Wednesday morning and said hey I'm flying in tonight to fix your water what a legend well so he was like six you know had a job from that moment on had responsibility has never worked hourly in his life got to 18 it was like two weeks after he turned 18 he said I'm gonna buy a house I'm gonna use it to I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a rental and um, had some money got a family member to loan not a ton of other money just a little bit more money fixed up a. Got this old, like, crappy house. Like, couldn't be crappier, but it was huge. Turned it into three units. Just 18 years old. Couldn't have just worked so hard. You know, a whole summer spent on working on this house. Um And, you know, he's 26 a day. He's got way more houses. You know, it snowballed very quickly. Whereas most 26-year-olds that I know haven't paid off their car yet. For sure yeah. haven't paid off their college yet. You know what I mean? And and he's just a high fly and, and sitting nice and, and still still go and still got a huge drive to um, to do things and help his community. And uh to me that's just amazing. That he started younger and and it snowballed really hard very quickly.
1: Yeah. 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 Time is the most valuable commodity. And uh, you know, if you wanna get into the game, you gotta start now, whether that's for planting trees or whether that's for uh saving up for that Thirty percent down payment on some some ground, a lot of good things uh, taught to us today. By skip. Man, we have so many things we didn't cover. We gotta to go we rapid gotta, fire. We got well, we got. There's any? I, I think we just gotta come back sometime and, and <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah and just yeah. hang out with you again. You know, It'd be great <laughs> to get skip on every year. That'd be that'd be an awesome thing. But I'm but, fine with that. Yeah, that we we like hanging out with you. It's it's awesome. Plus we're surrounded by some beautiful yeah. whitetails right now in sheds and I'm a shed head, so I I love seeing all the sheds. But but um uh I think kind of a good question to kind of wrap everything up skip is if we if you had a soapbox sermon prepared for hunters and farmers about conservation, about Taking care of the land, about taking care of the resource as far as whitetails go, what would you know what would you communicate to them? get to um, preach one sermon
0: i mean i think I think anything you put to, into the land gives back multiple times. It's kind of like uh when they talk about in church, you know some churches would say maybe maybe it's to get more donations the the tv churches if you invest or if you if sorry if you donate this amount you'll get 10 times back in the real world i mean it's clearly not like that but (laughs) but but land is and hunting is kind of like that what you invest you reap so much more of it you know you you manage the whitetails right and and it just the benefits just exponentially grow you know you you, you're conserving things you're not shooting the the deer when they're too young or you're willing to put the time into the forest management or into the habitat it just it gives in dividends i mean just massive amounts back to what you put in so um be willing to invest that and you know i'll I'll, whether it's dollar figures it's your time well I, i put in you know Uh, A month's worth of work and, you know, I didn't get paid to do that. You know, I it cost me money to do that work. Mm. It it will pay you back in dividends, whether that's financially, the ground's worth more money, Um, the soil's in better health, it raises better crops, Uh, I grow bigger deer, my hunts are more enjoyable, my my farm is more scenic. Um, If you're willing to invest your time, your money, your passion, your resources into it, it just gives back multiple times over and it continues to give back some of these projects i've done one time and they will give back for the rest of my life mm. so that is yeah really good. The, the, the right people owning land who are willing to put the time in and um the, that it isn't about money it's about their passion and, and willing to continue to improve their land and kind of never let off the gas because some of these things you know i gotta redo them every year my crops uh certain things i you know i was talking to you about thistles today i gotta manage make sure i'm on the thistles there's there's a lot of things but you keep up with this stuff whatever it is uh and
1: it it just continues to get better yeah yeah beautifully said and uh you know we talked about this recently in another podcast with with some guests just how humans are wired to need a connection to nature And I think humans are also wired to take pride in something that they have accomplished. And we've been sold this model of, you you joked earlier, like, yeah, I could have spent the last 20 years sitting on the couch and uh, maybe have saved myself a few aches and pains. Um, But I think that's a model that has been pitched to a lot of people. And a lot of people, I think we could be safe to say the majority of people, have taken the bait on that model, that the dream life is to be as comfortable and as as physically effort-free as possible. And yet, when you invest yourself like Skip has, financially, yes, but also right there doing the work himself, the amount of uh, the sense of accomplishment. You know, you were describing earlier like when you – Take a shower at the end of the day. That's how you know you're a farmer. You shower at night. You have to. Yeah. You have to. You get, get all yeah, the it's a disaster. Different tractor <laughs> fluids and, and all the stuff that's you've been either chopping or mulching or, or whatever in the day washed off of you. That exhaustion, I heard a guy once describe it uh, as being bushed. When you feel bushed at the end of the day from that physical effort, there is not a better feeling. Yeah,
0: I mean, you go live... Uh you go live a cushy night or a cushy life and a lot of these people will be like yeah i have to take ambien to sleep well you <laughs> yeah. go put in a day at the farm <laughs> yep. you don't have trouble falling asleep <laughs> that's yeah. right that's exactly right you go to sleep physically tired instead of there's just there's no doubt it. i think people who are out there working who um they're actually doing physical things throughout the day i mean there's no doubt if i have a day where i sit at a desk I'm just more lethargic. I'm not as perked, yep. perked up and I go out to the farm and I'm and there's no doubt I'm happier. I mean, I, I there's there's a chemical explanation for this. I mean, I'm happier yeah. moving around, being mm-hmm. around my farm, seeing different yeah. things all throughout the day. I mean, me personally and maybe somebody's listening to this in this situation, but you know, I've sat in a cubicle before. I've had jobs in college where I sat in a cubicle and I would be depressed out of my mind. I'd be the one you that know is going to the doctor asking him for antidepressants the size of horse pills. You know, if I had to do that, I'd be so depressed. Uh, I, and and I'm not. I love what I'm doing. I mean, you know, I'm in nature every day. I have my dream job. Um, and, you know, there was a point in, in my life where I had to work, and I had to work for somebody that wasn't my dream job. And I, you know, I just stashed the money away or just took a little bit of my side effort and kept building this. So at one point I could say, Hey, I don't need that job anymore. And you know, I'm very, very blessed where I'm at. And I, and I love this. And, and, you know, anybody could have some, some version of this. Maybe it's a 40 acre piece that they get away to on the weekend, or maybe it's a gardener, maybe it's, you know, whatever. I I just think it's critical for most people to be active in nature and, Mm. be outside and getting their blood flowing and you know the people sitting in front of a screen all day or um getting a free check from the government i mean just in my opinion is just not the way to exist i sure couldn't do that it may
2: feel easier but it is not better yeah easier isn't better
0: difficulties in life uh are very important very important you remove all the obstacles from people's lives and most of those people be be um miserable yeah yep I mean, think
2: about just how like, uh, human's bodies work to, for muscles to grow, you have to go through strain. And so similarly for like our souls, for lack of a better term, um, our psyche for that to get stronger, for that to be happy, for that to be sustained, we have to go through, we have to go through hard things, not, not necessarily bad things, but
1: at least hard things. Yeah. Difficult, challenging. Challenge is good. And uh, I think, yeah, you guys summed that up beautifully. You, you, In any way you're listening into this, and in, in, in any way that you can get connected to this, whether it's a small garden at your house, maybe you start a little tree nursery in your basement. Maybe you, uh, you know, maybe just get your flower beds looking a little bit better and puts, you know, get some dirt under your fingernails. Find a way to do that. Maybe it's go out and hunt, go fishing, whatever. Find a way to get yourself connected to nature. But then also find a way to start building back into that, giving back into that to, yeah. to leave it a little bit better than you found it. And uh, I guarantee you, you'll you'll see a lot of those negative emotions and feelings that seem to dominate so much of our society anymore. You'll start to see those diminish and uh, just feel, feel better about everything i really think so
0: this is my escape there's no doubt about it i get i look at some of the political stuff maybe once a day and i'll get i won't even get into that but it'll it'll tick me off and i come to the farm and shut my phone off for the whole day Mm. and i'm in a much happier place for it
1: yeah yeah beautifully said well nick once you uh wrap this one up for us buddy
2: man skip it has truly been a pleasure thanks for showing us around the the cool thing about Skip is is uh, I mean among many other things that we mentioned he started from nothing and he used hard work his brilliant mind some good decisions and uh, and some need you to okers. say this to my wife yeah, yeah. <laughs> I well, might well, have, well, have I a different reply her. here <laughs> I appreciate it though it, and he has built a beautiful landscape of conservation and I that just proves conservation happens one mind at a time.